Good morning, Colorado. You're listening to The Daily Sunup. The Daily Sunup podcast is a conversation with the Colorado Sun. See our trust indicators at coloradosun.com slash ethics. It's Friday, February 23rd. Today, this Friday, it's time to talk music again with Sunrider Kevin Simpson and G. Brown, director of the Colorado Music Experience. Before we begin, a special thank you to all of our Colorado Sun members listening. It's thanks to you that The Sun continues to bring trustworthy, independent journalism to readers and listeners across our state. If you're not yet a member and want to join us, visit coloradosun.com join to sign up. While you're there, check out our member e-newsletters like Colorado Sunday, The Temperature, and more. Together, we'll keep Colorado informed in 2024. Now, let's go back in time with some Colorado history. On this day in 1981, Denver's KOA radio station introduced a confrontational talk show hosted by Alan Berg, a figure known for his divisive appeal in Colorado. Berg, a Chicago native and University of Colorado alumnus, transitioned from selling menswear to radio in 1971, quickly gaining popularity for his candid and often provocative discussions on liberal policies and controversial topics. Despite his abrasive style, Berg was valued for his honesty and directness, challenging listeners to think critically. His outspoken stance on various issues and Jewish identity attracted the animosity of extremist groups, leading to his assassination by white supremacists in 1984. Berg's legacy as a pioneering voice in talk radio endures, influencing the genre's evolution towards bold punditry. Before we continue, a quick thanks to Daily Sunup listeners like you. If you like what you hear, please take a moment to rate and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts. We'd love to hear what you think. Thanks. Next, our feature story. The window, what did I see? Tired of feather running after me. Ran so hard, sun went down. Ran so hard, the moon came out. Welcome to another Friday, listeners, and welcome to my friend G. Brown, who oversees Colorado Music Experience at colomusic.org, which just a treasure trove of the state's music history with everything from artist profiles, recordings of live performances at local venues, uh, you name it. How's it going, G? Uh, doing better than I deserve, Kev, as the cliche goes, but uh, just <laughs> that's just dandy today. <laughs> All right. Well, we're going to talk about a whole range of things today, and I wanted to get started with a nod to Black History Month and some of the artists that you featured in the Colorado Music Experience. Uh, bonus points if you recognize that a clip of intro music that we played as the inimitable and immensely interesting Otis Taylor, who came to Denver as an adolescent with his parents and carved out a niche in blues and folk music. But what were some of the things that separated his music from others, G? Well, Otis has had maybe the most interesting career arc of any musician I know. Uh, uh, growing up, going to East High School in the late 60s, um, 
And then fast forwarding ahead, the W.C. Handy Awards, the blues equivalent of the Grammys, uh, he won Best New Artist when he was 53, uh, which is uh, <laughs> a young buck. Yeah, interesting gap there. You know, back when he was a teenager, Otis was uh, very unique, riding a unicycle to school. There's pictures in the newspapers from back then of that happening. Uh, not a lot of black rugby players either. Uh, but he, as an adolescent, started hanging out at the Denver Folklore Center, bought a ukulele, then a banjo, and just got taken up with music once he saw the old folk blues masters like Sunhouse and Fred McDowell, and uh, wound up in Boulder, played in a few groups, actually went over to London in 1969 to uh, pursue a record deal, and it just didn't work out. So he came back here and played with Tommy Bowen, the legendary guitarist uh, who came out of Colorado, but ultimately retired from the music business in 1977. And that sabbatical lasted a couple of decades. He uh, didn't perform. He was an antiques dealer and organized one of the first all-black bicycling teams. Really interesting stuff. And then in about 1995, a, a friend opened a... Uh, coffee shop up on the hill in Boulder and wanted to do live music in the basement and asked Taylor if he'd do it. And he put together a fantastic band with Eddie Turner on lead guitar and Kenny Passarelli on bass, two legendary Denver musicians in their own right, and came up with this kind of trance blues is what it was termed, uh, kind of that one chord boogie that John Lee Hooker uh, introduced and Otis kind of perfected it has done many albums. He's a god over in Europe where they seem to take indigenous American music more seriously than we do over here. But uh, just an uh, uh, interesting talent, interesting guy, uh, not a judgment. You know, if uh, if you subscribe to the old, uh, you get catch more flies with, uh, is it honey or vinegar? Uh, Otis is definitely a vinegar guy, okay? <laughs> I, I prefer honey. Otis is a vinegar guy, you know, but he's he's a fantastic talent, and uh, I consider him a friend. Well, yeah, you've got a great half-hour interview with him on the site that uh, touches all the bases, uh, including that stint coaching a professional cycling team, which is just fascinating to me, that this the range of interests that he pursued. But uh, let's talk about some of the others you've profiled. Who are some of your favorites and, and how they helped define or preserve, in some cases, Denver's music history? Well, a personal mission is to preserve the legacy of the late Ron Miles, who was a jazz master of trumpet and cornet, uh, was a professor at Metro State, helped so many young people in their career paths and educational paths. Um, played with Bill Frizzell, all the jazz greats, ironically put out his uh, uh, album on Blue Note Records, the legendary jazz label, uh, the year bef uh, within a year of his death. Um, uh, just a sad story. Miss him terribly, but uh, great to chronicle uh, his arc and, uh, and talent in a, one of our little mini documentaries. Uh, I'm also very fond of pianist Pernell Steen, who preserves and plays the music of Denver's legendary Five Points neighborhood, uh, which was the was ground zero for the African-American community here in Denver. 
and he plays with the uh, uh, best jazz musicians in town to uh, play five points music, that type of jazz. And of course, ironically enough, uh, Purnell's uh, cousin, Charlie Burrell, the first African-American member of a major symphony who's revered by generations of both classical and jazz devotees. He's 103. He's still with us, Kevin. It's totally cannot. Uh, fantastic. <laughs> Just keep putting attention to uh, Charlie's amazing legacy at this stage of his life. It's wonderful. And, and he has birthday parties, it seems like, every year that attract a bit of a crowd. Well, <laughs> uh, not to make it about me, but uh, had a relative who lived to a ripe old age, 108, and kind of found out that once you hit 100, you got to go back for the birthday party every year, not just the <laughs> multiples of five or 10. You got to gotta celebrate everyone at that point. They deserve it. <laughs> Well, we've talked about Charlie Burrell here before, and he just keeps piling up those birthday celebrations, and we've played some clips of his, but uh, if we want to change things up, who should we play today? Well, let's go with another cousin, um, Diane Reeves, the preeminent jazz vocalist, a five-time Grammy winner, uh, certainly one of our most underappreciated talents, in my opinion. I mean, she... She should be queen, but she's just, uh, you know, makes Denver her home and uh, internationally renowned. Uh, You know, what an amazing career. There was a point where all of the divas of the jazz world had kind of passed on, and there was a new generation to to carry on, and Diane was the most significant in my mind. Uh, It was uh, Charlie Burrell, her uncle, who introduced her to Ella Fitzgerald and Billie Holiday and Sarah Vaughn. And boy, Diane took it and ran with it. Just uh, amazing. Listen for yourself. Yeah. Oh, I was doing a dive onto uh, YouTube yesterday to look uh, look up some of her stuff. And oh my gosh, what a voice and how, how versatile. And I picked out a clip of hers called Better Days. And uh, let's see what you guys think. Well, gee, we're going to shift gears here and take a look at what was going on almost 30 years ago in popular popular music. And fortunately, we've got your guidebook to help us along. The On Record series is up to, gosh, how many now? Well, uh, 1995 is volume six. And I aspire to cover 1978 to 1998, which would be 21 volumes in all. Trying to keep the train on the tracks. They're all pretty much written. Just getting them out in the world is a whole other thing. But uh, just because I'm good at fractions, Kevin, uh, we are two-sevenths of the way there <laughs> with volumes. <laughs> well, they're, they're all terrific. And I was I was paging through 1995 uh, the other day. And, I, gee, I didn't realize until 
I was looking through there. I know you'll say there were many more significant things that happened in 1995, but that was the year the Rockies started playing in brand spanking new Coors Field. And it was also the year that you very nearly made a very particular kind of music or sports history or, or both. So you, you just, you got to share this story with our listeners. It's just incredible. So it's the, I guess it's kind of musical. Uh, this is the introduction to the books, which is uh, uh, the only place where it gets first person. I'm fiercely proud that these books are reportage and not, not uh, memoirs. Having said that, this is kind of a great story. Uh, again, the Rockies moving into Coors Field after spending their first two seasons at Mile High Stadium. Uh, and uh, down in Lodo, you know, Coors Field immediately got the reputation as a hitter's park because of the high elevation, semi-arid climate, all the other things that have been talked about to death. So we had the Blake Street Bombers, those guys who could really rake. And you remember there are walk-up music, right? Don oh, absolutely. Come yeah. enough to play to the strains of Sledgehammer by Peter Gabriel before he went yard, or uh, Larry Walker sending a moonshot into the upper deck to Crazy Train by Ozzy Osbourne, right? <laughs> so, commensurate with that, uh, pitcher development suffered, and uh, <laughs> my memory of uh, time after time noticing Frank Funk, the pitching coach, going out to the mound for a conference with a member of his beleaguered staff. And Frank Funk wore number 45. So the back of his uniform read Funk 45. And it dawned on me, it has to be Funk 49. There's in the James gang here. <laughs> Funk 49, right? Wouldn't it be great to hear Joe Walsh's little guitar riff uh, whenever he left the dugout? <laughs> yeah. So I tracked down Funk being a journalist, right? Uh, and wanting to do my due diligence, I made my wild pitch, so to speak, as <laughs> if we consider switching his number. And he thought I was from Mars, basically. You know, he didn't really care, but um, he had never even heard the song. He liked mellow jazz, you know, Grover Washington and uh, George Benson, Earl Clude. So he just said, you know, I think I'll pass. I got everything Mark 45. I don't have to do it again. So I thought that was the end of it, but Chico McGuinn, the Rockies equipment manager, a legend in his own right, was a huge classic rock fan, and he read my little piece about this, and he changed Fonts number to 49 without telling him. So I impacted the culture of our national pastime. Uh, I don't think sabermetrics can measure my pride, Kevin. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Sadly, I don't think the team ever wised up to play the song, but at least uh, Frank became Funk 49. So there you go. Well, that's just a, that's a classic story. And I, gosh, I wish they had. It would have been like right up there with uh, Trevor Hoffman, the, the Padres reliever, coming out to Hell's Bells every time he came in to close a game. It, no it would have been classic. Coulda, woulda, shoulda. Anyway. <laughs> Rush with greatness, Cal. And what were some of the, aside from that, uh, what were some of the other highlights of that year? It seems like 95 cut a pretty wide swath through pop music. Yeah. Alternative rock really made an impact, uh, both commercially and in the underground. Uh, that was when Alanis Morissette released Jagged Little Pill, one of the biggest albums of all time. Bands like Foo Fighters and Radiohead released their consequential albums. 
uh, Britpop was going on with uh, Oasis and Blur and Coolio found uh, the top of the charts with Gangsta's Paradise. Uh, I remember Jerry Garcia passed away that year of a heart attack, and that's when the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in Cleveland was dedicated. Uh, another story, Kevin, you seem to like them, uh, in front of the hotel in Cleveland. That's the only time I've been there was for the dedication in 95. And in front of the hotel, Limo pulls up and Reverend Al Green pulls out. Oh, my God. Middle of the afternoon, not a, not a crowd or anything for him, but the few um, people that were there, you know, wanted to say hi and uh, get his autograph. And I got to shake his hand, and I got to say, the greatest handshake of all time. It was like a, someone had taken a catcher's mitt made out of lamb skin and put it in the microwave for 30 seconds and just <laughs> unbelievably, you know, up to my wrist, pillowy, warm greeting. I almost peed myself. I mean, it was, just, <laughs> it was uh, really astounding. So in the annals of great handshakes, that's that's my stuff. Oh, gosh. She could shake her. He could sing a little bit, too. Oh, man. The Reverend Al. Great. Oh. Well, uh, listeners, you can find really great profiles of all those artists uh, in this On Record volume, uh, 1995. And music lovers, you can order it directly and proceeds benefit the nonprofit Colorado Music Experience. What's the, the best way to order? Gee, I know there's a, a couple options out there. Yeah, it's uh, really all options, Kevin. It's certainly available online. Uh, and also at good bookstores everywhere, internationally, thanks to our friends at PGW. So, um, yeah, I hope people investigate. You got my guarantee. You'll find it entertaining. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I want to ask you about one artist in particular who released an album in 95, uh, because it's someone who just recently re reappeared after an absence, uh, along with her debut hit. Now, I'm talking about Tracy Chapman who, of course, found fame in the 80s with uh, Fast Car, uh, one of those timeless songs that uh, also got a big-time cover from country singer Luke Combs, who very recently, famously, performed it with her at this year's Grammys. But 1995 was two albums after her smash hit and something of a redefinition for Tracy Chapman, wasn't it? Yeah, so it's uh, that's my joy to chronicle these various periods of development in uh, people's careers. In the 1988 volume, which is volume five, <laughs> that uh, was the last one out, um, we wrote about Fast Car and her 1988 debut album. Uh, what an amazing song, uh, just of its time, just the impaired dreams, I guess is how I'd put it, that she sang so eloquently about, uh, had this strong political conscience and uh, really passionate looks at her own struggles, and uh, it turned the pop world on its ear, right? Uh, yeah. Picked up three Grammys and was on that Amnesty International Conspiracy of Hope tour with Sting and Peter Gabriel just out of nowhere. But Tracy just wasn't wired for the demands of that kind of international celebrity you know she was just a, a singer from cleveland spent time at playing in boston coffee houses when she was at tufts university so all of a sudden it's amplified and 
you've heard the cliche, Kevin, an artist has his or her whole life to write songs for their first album and then six months <laughs> to write the second. Right. <laughs> so uh, Tracy came out with an album called Crossroads, which was a little disappointing uh, in terms of commercially at least. And most fans relegated her to cult status after Matters of the Heart came out in 1992. So she de-escalated her career, um, moved to the Bay Area and put together a five-piece band. And in 1995, put out an album called New Beginning. And it was uh, just as authoritative and powerful as ever uh, as far as just her songwriting and her voice. And Give Me One Reason was an atypical hit that came from that album and uh, kind of sparked interest again before she <laughs> before she de-escalated again, right? <laughs> exactly. Well, we, we've got a, a clip from Give Me One Reason. Here's Tracy Chapman. Give me one reason to stay here And I'll turn right back around That's just a great song, great singer-songwriter. But before we move on to the next segment, uh, let's remember 1995 uh, and give me one reason why we shouldn't play a clip from Funk 49, Joe Walsh's riff. I can't give you a reason. I'll just uh, visualize Frank Funk walking out to the mound. <laughs> All right. We're well into spring training now, so let's let her rip. Well, gee, er, earlier this month, uh, we lost an eccentric rocker who died aboard a country music cruise at only 66, uh, which seems younger every day. Uh, he certainly wasn't everyone's cup of tea, but he was really <laughs> something. Uh, I'm not sure what, but he was something. And your profile of him on Colorado Music Experience was just a, a, really a revelation to me. Tell us about Mojo Nixon and particularly his Colorado connection. Well, Mojo, uh, it, I, and I say this in the most positive and laudatory sense of the word, was a lunatic. Uh, he was, <laughs> I guess, more genteel way of putting it, a rock eccentric uh, guitarist, singer, songwriter, and a, uh, and a motor mouth, you know, um, He'd always been Gonzo uh, under his real name, which was Kirby McMillan. He lived here in Denver around 1980-81 and was a member of a band called Zebra 123. And they were a punk band in every sense of the word. They put on something called the Assassination Ball. 
at the notorious Capitol Hill Club Malfunction Junction. This was on November 22nd, the anniversary of John F. Kennedy's assassination. And the U.S. Secret Service showed up and uh, oh my God. him extensively about the uh, reasoning behind this event. Uh, Mojo always said that he had a file. They had a file on him somewhere. You know? <laughs> <laughs> the government. But he went on then to uh, move to San Francisco shortly thereafter and teamed up with Skid Roper, a washboard player, and started assaulting everyone's musical sensibilities. Uh, he delivered these really obnoxious diatribes uh, <laughs> in the roots rock format, kind of psychobilly, if you will. Um, he just got away with, what are some of the subversive lyrics? I saw Allah at an Arby's. <laughs> or uh, the Dow Jones can suck my bone. Um, he wrote a, a somewhat indelicate love letter, did he, to Martha Quinn, the MTV VJ at the time, stuffing Martha's muffin. Uh, his ode to the Just Say No movement, I ain't going to piss in no jar. <laughs> that was what uh, Mojo Traffic did. It was my, kind of a one-trick pony, but, you know, depending <laughs> on your... Delicate sensibilities, pretty funny, right? <laughs> well, I was reading through your uh, your profile of them. There, there's a great story in there around his uh, 1987 song called "Elvis Is Everywhere." Uh, but beyond just a song, that thing seemed to have a life of its own. Yeah, his little declamations uh, really weren't commercial fare, but uh, "Elvis Is Everywhere" was a novelty hit, uh, kind of a exaggerated tribute to the king, but it caught on because it was the 10th anniversary of Elvis's death. Uh, he was ranting to a rockabilly beat. He's, he's in your cheeseburgers. He's in your mom. You know, and he's <laughs> hitting, uh, uh, being responsible for the Bermuda Triangle. Elvis needs boats and uh, uh, being in everyone from bag ladies to Joan Rivers, although in Joan Rivers' case, he was trying to get out. <laughs> um, and then he followed it up with uh, another song called 629239KING, King, a phone number, an honest to goodness phone number. He had it set up in his living room. It was tied to an answering machine with a plea for Elvis to phone home and for callers to leave messages about various Elvis sightings. And uh, <laughs> Elvis is such a nut. He said nine out of 10 were just people being pusillanimous, as he put it. But uh, <laughs> one out of 10 was a legitimate raving psycho. <laughs> like to talk about Elvis uh, still being with us. So uh, he loved that. Elvis, you know, did have some chops. He appeared on screen in Great Balls of Fire, the Jerry Lee Lewis biopic that started right. Quaid, right? He played the drummer, James Van Eaton was in uh, Jerry Lee's band. Um, and he also came up with one more song of note, the cruelly honest, we'll say, <laughs> Don Henley must die. Uh, the Eagles drummer, what was one of the couplets? Uh, he's a tortured artist, used to be in the Eagles. Now he whines like a wounded beagle. Um, <laughs> inspirational couplet, right? Um his record company claimed they had to remove a sticker, which was a round picture of Henley with a line through it and containing a warning, please don't play Don Henley must die. It might upset him. <laughs> they, uh, 
you know, I'm sure it was uh, Henley's manager who was doing the saber rattling. Uh, I'm sure they just thought that it increased record sales. Right? <laughs> <laughs> they didn't want to bet it would encourage our play. But to his credit, uh, I'm a I'm an advocate for Don Henley. He showed up uh, about a year later in the audience at one of Mojo Nixon's shows in Texas and climbed on the stage and instigated a rowdy, if not downright inebriated version of the song. So uh, <laughs> that's actually kind of cool. <laughs> so how does a guy like Mojo Nixon come to be taking a, a country music cruise? There must have been a, a shift in his focus somewhere along the way there. Yeah, I think it's important. Outlaw country would be the uh, uh, umbrella instead of just uh, your typical country music. For the last two decades, uh, he had shifted his focus to radio. He joined a show on Sirius XM, their Outlaw Country channel. And he's been doing that since, night, or what, 2005. The show's called The Loon in the Afternoon. And uh, <laughs> as part of that station's promotion, they do an annual Outlaw Country clue, Cruise, excuse me, Outlaw Country Cruise, an annual music event. And he served as a co-host and regular performer. And this time out, he suffered cardiac arrest after uh, performing a show. So, R.I.P. Mojo. Oh boy. Well, Jason, I'm not familiar with his discography. Uh, what would you suggest uh, to play us into the weekend by Mojo? Well, uh, the one bit of raucous social commentary that we didn't allude to was Debbie Gibson is pregnant with my two-headed love child. <laughs> so let's do that. <laughs> All right, that sounds good. So here we go with Mojo Nixon, folks. Uh, thanks for joining us. And, and remember, if you enjoy the podcast, please leave a review on whatever platform you use to tune in. And have a great weekend, Jace. I'll see you next month, Kevin. Thanks. Debbie Gibson is You can read more at coloradosun.com. Finally, here are a few stories that you should know about today. Democrats are pushing an ambitious slate of bills that would pause oil and gas drilling during summer months and set mileage limits for drivers of gasoline-powered cars. The legislation unveiled Thursday and would also increase fines for repeat polluters such as the Suncor refinery in Commerce City. Oil and gas interests promised to put up a fight, arguing that current regulations are sufficient. A bill with similar ozone-fighting provisions was gutted in the 2023 legislative session. Supporters of the latest proposal say it has broader backing than last year's. A federal jury has awarded $30 million to an oil and gas worker who sued a Wyoming operator after losing a leg in a 2019 tank explosion in Weld County. The Idaho man was working on a well pad serviced by BHS Incorporated when the blast threw him nearly 30 feet into the air. He will require future surgeries, including knee and hip replacements. Colorado's limits on awards for pain and suffering could make it impossible for him to collect up to $15 million of his judgment. The man's attorneys say they may pursue a ballot measure to overturn those limits. 
Vail is celebrating the storied soldiers of Colorado's 10th Mountain Division, starting today as part of a three-day festival featuring a tribute to a famous World War II battle. Skiers will take to the slopes during Legacy Days this weekend to commemorate the division's Battle of Riva Ridge, a Black Hawk helicopter landing atop a Vail ski area, a parade, a ski trooper's race, and a talk by the authors of a recent book on Camp Hale are also planned. Visit coloradosun.com for information on how to attend. For more information on all of these stories, visit our website, coloradosun.com. And don't forget to tune in again next time. Now a quick message from our team. This is Michael Booth. And this is John Ingold. We cover health and climate here at the Colorado Sun. Every week, John and I work together to send out a newsletter to our premium members called The Temperature. In this newsletter, we share our latest reporting about health and climate and how they intersect. Issues like forever chemicals, healthcare's rising costs, and the lingering effects of the pandemic. The Temperature is one of our weekly newsletters available to members at the premium level. To sign up, head to coloradosun.com join. Not only will you be able to sign up for the temperature and our other premium newsletters, but you'll be supporting the Colorado Sun as a member, and thanks for doing that.